And we want to live dangerously, but in security. You remember the metaphor of the horror house last week. Dangerous, but we know that we don't risk anything. And hinting at what will be the main subject of the Talmudic reading, Levinas said, we want to know before we do. Huh? Formulating a kind of inverse principle of the Nasevinisma, of the we will do and then we will hear the famous, uh, the same famous w- words that the Jews, that the Israelites said on the mo- before uh, receiving the Torah, the Western man, that's what is, what is important here for us, that's the kind of introduction into our subject, because for what we didn't enter in the Talmudic text yet. Ignace wants to first to, 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 to put on the table the cards, and he says, well, Western man is about hearing and then doing, never engaging without first understanding, never really taking a risk in the world, always anticipating what can be, and then eventually engage, but the engagement then will not be unconditional because it would be preceded by a kind of understanding of what is. Let's, let's re- read a little uh, uh, passage, a very, very beautiful um, passage about the priority of knowledge. It's on page 35. And, um, and this will... This, uh, this paragraph is the second paragraph. This paragraph is very, very interesting because here, again, Levinas gives us a kind of phenomenon, a kind of description of what philosophy is about from his point of view, very original. Uh, way of explaining what philosophy is about. And you will see at the end of the paragraph it already hints to one of the main subjects of Levinas' philosophy, which is the question of the relation to the other man. Um, Let's read it and I'll I'll comment it a little bit um, more after. So, page 35, the second paragraph, Levinas writes, Philosophy, in any case, can be defined so it's a definition of philosophy that Levinas gives here, as the subordination of any act to the knowledge that one may have of that act. Those are very complicated texts, but, if, but they are also very clear. Knowledge being precisely this merciless demand to bypass nothing to surmount the congenital narrowness of the pure act, making up in this manner for its dangerous generosity. The priority of knowledge is the temptation of temptation. The act, in its naivety, is made to lose its innocence. Now it will arise only after calculation, after a careful waging, so, so you weighing, weighing of the pros and cons, it will no longer be either free or generous or dangerous. It will no longer leave the other in its otherness, but will always include it in the world, in the world approaching it, as they say today, in an historical perspective, as the horizon of the world. 
From this stems the inability to recognize the other person as other person as outside all calculation is never as first come. What do you understand from this part? This is a key paragraph because in this paragraph, Levinas really formulates, and this comes back again and again in all of this philosophy, Levinas formulates his critique of philosophy. What is this critique? Levinas says philosophy is about the priority of knowing. A philosopher wants to know. A philosopher wants to grasp reality. A philosopher wants to, to be able to control the world. Intellectually speaking, at least, but it can also have practical implications. By relating this way, in this way to the world, as Levinas says, the philosopher, the philosopher never engaged, engages into uh, an act, a spontaneous act, Levinas says, a generous act, which is not preceded by calculation. If you want, we all, we are all very careful. Actually, what Levinas is formulating here is a principle of being careful. The Western man is very careful. He doesn't want to engage into something that he doesn't know exactly what it is. He doesn't want to, he's not prepared to welcome something without trying to find out beforehand what it is exactly that you see. I don't know, you buy a, a machine in uh, eBay or something like this, you want to know exactly that it's a bad example, but it's just through here. The, a better example would be, though, um, the borders. Border. When somebody enters a country, I did it last week, so I can tell you, if you have to, if you want to, I'm not, I didn't immigrate to the States, but I came for a long period, so you have to fill in a lot of documents, a lot of paperwork. You have to write exactly who you are, where you came from, how many times you came to the States, if you have some affinities with terrorists, etc. Et et so it goes, it goes from like very soft questions to very, uh, and you say, of course, they have to secure their borders. And the question is not about the pragmatical usage of it. The question is, this is a kind of macro, macro um, view of what Ignace here is describing. Western men will not welcome somebody. It's a caricature. So, but, but then, before actually knowing exactly who it is who is coming. And for even that, this is deeply rooted in the, in, the, in the basic philosophical attitude towards the world. We want to know before we do. We want to be sure that what we have before us is something we can actually 
uh, I don't know, bears where we are wanting to bear everything. Uh, everything stands before our judgment. Everything stands before our will. We have to decide. We cannot do something which hinders our freedom. And in fact, what the Nasir is describing is the priority of freedom. As Western men, we are very attached to our liberty. There is a statue here downtown which symbolizes it, the statue of liberty. And, and, and this is, this is a, this, if value is the fundamental value, if freedom, excuse me, freedom is the fundamental value, well, it comes with what Ignaz describes here. It comes with a kind of suspicion towards the other. And let's reread the last two uh, phrases, because there Ignaz actually stipulates the relation between philosophy and the possibility of welcoming somebody other without calculation, without asking his back for his political background, etc., etc., Ignaz writes, in philosophy will no longer leave the other in its otherness, but will always include it in the whole, approaching it, as they say today, in a historical perspective at the horizon of the whole. From this stems the inability to recognize the other person as other person, as outside all calculation, as neighbor, as first come. And this is hence the critique given as formulates towards philosophy. Philosophy is incapable of recognizing the other person as other person. How are you with me? Because there's always a there's always an attachment, this is a calculation that has yeah, because, Yes, exactly. I always yeah. to to welcome the other in its pure otherness is to be ready to to be vulnerable. The priority of knowledge. Again, remember this idea because the Talmudic lecture that we will study is about the inversion of this priority. We shall hear and then we, oh, excuse me, we shall do and then we shall hear. We shall do and then we shall know, if you want to, the translation. This is what the Israelites said, said um, at Mount Sinai. So here we've been asked, actually, in this introduction to in this you know, preliminary remarks to his Talmudic studies is actually telling us that what the what what the stakes are, what the stakes of this Talmudic lecture. It's the Western civilization or Sinai, revelation or philosophy. We will see this 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 will come again and again, uh, but I want already to, to to highlight this. Uh, this point, because in order for us to understand what we are dealing with in this very strange Dominic lecture, from the point of view of Linus, the question here is no less than the question of Athens and Jerusalem, is your house from Revelation or reason? Western civilization or Sinai? Last week we have 
uh, we concluded our study with this uh, with, with, with a phrase that promised you we uh, return to and uh, please take again at page 34 when Linas gives us the alternative to temptation of temptation it is page 34 uh, the second paragraph if you count four lines from the from the start of this paragraph the temptation of temptation is philosophy did you find it? temptation of temptation is philosophy in contrast to a wisdom which knows everything without experiencing it this, this sentence is for the moment is quite enigmatic will become less enigmatic uh, later, but for the moment what's interesting here, what I want to uh, emphasize, is the alternative that Levinas puts here on the table is in fact a very very original alternative. Why is this so? We will understand uh, the point immediately. If you had to oppose philosophy to something, if you had to oppose knowledge to something, what would you oppose knowledge to? What is the natural ignorance? Ignorance, Cliché. ignorance is the opposite of knowledge. So you can either praise knowledge, or I don't know why, but it could be there are some who can praise ignorance. But our world is divided. Our world is divided into those two categories. Practically everything we can either know it or ignore it. We can have a knowledge of I don't know of uh, philosophy, or we can ignore philosophy. We can have a knowledge of Talmud and uh, or. Or ignore it. We can have the knowledge of I don't know. We can know to ride uh, a car, or we, or, we, or we can ignore uh, it's not knowing it. And in philosophy, in, in the history of philosophy, one word about the history of philosophy, this opposition is extremely important because philosophy always, from Plato, from the ancient Greek philosophers, throughout all the history of philosophy, philosophy claims that they have knowledge, philosophy is knowledge, as opposed to the common man who just lives in the dark, who lives in the, you know, who lives in the cave, to take the, the, the famous Platonic allegory. The, the philosopher is the one who escapes from the cave and sees the light, and the, the common man who not able because of a lot of reasons, mainly because he's not interested, but also because sometimes he doesn't have the intellectual um, abilities to do so, he remains in the dark, he remains in ignorance, he remains in illusion, he in opinions, they call it in, in Greek. Opinions. Opinions are unfounded ideas as opposed to knowledge, or founded ideas. 2 plus 2 equals 4, because I can prove that 2 plus 4, 2 equals 4. Uh, 
opinions. For instance, uh, I don't know, Barack Obama is better than, I don't know, who's the Republican candidate? I don't know, so I don't know. So Barack Obama, the liberals are better than the Republicans? Well, that, that's an opinion. It's something which is, I can, I can argue in favor of one of both uh, but it's not a strong knowledge. It's not like 2 plus 2 equals 4. So philosophers, they are interested in knowledge, and the rest of the world, well, they are in uh, a state of, of, of ignorance. And that's why philosophy is better than, to, to live a philosophical life is better than to be a carpenter. Again, in the, philo- in, the, in the world of the philosophers, in the mind of Plato, in the mind of Socrates, in the mind of Aristotle, there is a clear cut separation between it's bipolar. The world is divided into two separate group of groups of people. Sometimes, sometimes philosophers even went further and they said that it was that there were different natures. That they were people who were born with a philosophical nature, who were naturally philosophers. And some people who were just not born this way. But don't you think that's true? Excuse me? Do you think that's true? Like philosophy could be a philosophical mind could be developed or it's a name? Uh, that's, that's a very cruel question to ask me. <laughs> <laughs> um, and are you asking for an opinion? <laughs> 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 um, no, it's interesting. That I, I will say the, I will say the following. No, not to risk too much. Then you will decide. Uh, until until the 18th century, we still find philosophers who think this. For instance, Spinoza. Spinoza told that. That it was that it was something which is which is a condition. It's not something that it's a nature. Philosopher to be a philosopher is a nature. It's not it's not something that you learn then you become. It's something that of course you can. It's not natural. Not just in the sense that it can, doesn't come naturally. But it is a it is a it is it is a feature that belongs to some people and not to to others. With the French Revolution, with uh, more, with uh, Enlightenment, with uh, different trends that, that, that changed Western civilization, um, you know, it was just in order to explain you how um, strange it is to our contemporary way of looking at things in, in, in for the ancients. It would, if women cannot be a philosopher, women would not be able to, there was nothing such as a woman philosopher. Well, that's true in the Talmud too. Um, For often true in the Talmud. What are you referring to? I'm referring to the um, motif that runs through the Talmud, that women are of a different nature than men. Yes. And that therefore uh, women have capacities that are different than men yes. and the capacity for studying even and understanding all these things is either absent or less in women. It's a caricature. Okay. No, no. It's, it's a strong 
the classical opposition between knowledge and ignorance. He says the the alternative is not temptation or of temptation or ignorance. Maybe you philosophers you think that that's the alternative. You think that it's either you are a philosopher or you are just wandering in the dark. Perhaps, and that's what Linus suggests here in this uh, sentence, and we'll read a passage later that in which, in which Linus explicitly exposes this idea. Linus here says, this alternative I do not accept. It's not either you are a philosopher or meaning temptation or temptation, or you are just in opinion, in ignorance, in doxa, etc., etc. No, there might be a third way. There might be another alternative to this alternative. Yes, that would be the alternative. It will come back again and again. This idea that Tivinas is not playing the game that is expected of him to play as a philosopher. He is redistributing the cards. He says, well, maybe in the Talmudic texts we find something else. I, Linas, call it wisdom, and here he uses the new word, wisdom, in French, sagesse. In French, what? Sagesse. Sagesse. In French? No. Sagesse. Like the word sage? Yes. Yes. In French, we say un sage. A wise man, yeah. a sage, and in English you don't have the this um, other inclination. This you have wisdom, but you don't have sagesse. Sagesse is actually wisdom. So Lincoln says maybe there is something which is not in the orbit of this philosophical distinction, which exceeds philosophical distinction between knowledge and ignorance. Let's let's read um, uh, page. Thirty-four on the bottom of the page, and here you see Olivinas uh, explicitly writes what, I, what we just said. But opinion, thirty-four on the bottom of the page. Opinion, and here you see Olivinas uses this word opinion in the way I just explained it. Opinion meaning not an un, un, unfounded um, ideas, un, uh, yeah, opinion, something which is not knowledge. Okay, opinion. Recognized as the sole enemy of philosophy because it takes adventures of credulity and ignorance, legitimates, if one can put it this way, this all-encompassing curiosity, this unlimited and anticipatory indiscretion which constitutes knowledge, seat of the a priori, a priori and of the facts. So Yelena says, if, if you have the alternative, if the alternative is between ignorance and knowledge, between opinion and, and true, true uh, uh, knowledge, of course you, you, would prefer, you would prefer knowledge. But he, but he says, but maybe opinion is not the only alternative. It makes us forget the unsavory joy of knowledge immodesty, the applications and the incapacities peculiar to it. I 
I don't want to refer it there. So, Levinas is not advocating for ignorance when he criticizes knowledge. Levinas, Levinas' critique of temptation of temptation is not, is not a praise of naivety. You, you saw this word returning again and again in the text. It's not that Levinas says, well, you have to be naive to go around the world as a kind of child that is always uh, amazed by things without really knowing anything. He's not in favor of a kind of a blind spontaneity of a child. What Levinas will try to do is to find a third way, say, between or beyond both, that exceeds both knowledge and ignorance. Let's read the last passage where Levinas um, explains the dangers of childhood. We, we can use uh, those metaphors also, Levinas uses them, the difference between an adult and a child. If you want to, to live in the world as an adult um, is to live philosophically in Levinas' concepts. Because an adult is a man who, a human being who who calculates, who tries to understand where he's living, who does not engage into actions before he knows exactly what he's doing. That's, that's an adult. We call it being responsible. We see Levinas as another understanding of what it means to be responsible. A child is, uh, is, 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 is the human condition in the sense that you do things without understanding what they are, you engage into things without it's exactly the opposite, childish naivety. Of course, this is not less dangerous. The childish attitude is not less dangerous than the attitude of the adult. Because there is a danger relating, related to spontaneity. Let's read uh, page 35, on the bottom of the page. Isn't an act done apart from knowledge, isn't the generosity of pure spontaneity leaving aside for the moment all cultural influence in itself dangerous? Besides, isn't naive generosity in its essence a provisional situation which can only preserve from temptations artificially? Can one oppose the naivety of faith to the temptation of temptation when it reveals its philosophical and scientific aspects? as certain as this faith may see of the divine message to which it adheres, can childhood answer the tempter with confidence, confidence in the long run? An affirmative answer to this question is sometimes given by Christianity. But spontaneous engagement, in contrast to a theoretical exploration which should in principle proceed, is is either impossible and dangerous or provisional. Okay. So here, and this will be the last, uh, last the last thing we'll see in this, this kind of preliminary reflections of the Vinas. Vinas said, 
I'm not interested nor in neither in this kind of philosophical attitude which, con- which consists in knowing everything before doing, but I'm not interested. I'm, I'm, I, I'm not interested also in the the kind of opposite attitude, which should, would be a kind of childish relation to the world. I don't have to. I'm doing it before knowing. To do before knowing, doing before knowing, is for us, in its childish understanding, is naivety, dangerous, provisional, as childish actions are. Of course, in us, we will, will have to give another account of the Nasev and Ishma, of the we will do and then we will hear. But, and and this is one of the, those, this is one of the, 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 the difficulties um, of, of those the, the texts of Levinas. This is uh, the, 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 dif- the difficulty lies in the fact that Levinas tries to think about something that was never taught before. He tries to formulate in a modern language an idea that philosophy never envisaged. Tries to he tries to find something which is not part of our day-to-day way of understanding the world. And all this, this introduction we have studied until now is about just saying, well, maybe the alternative is not knowledge and ignorance, sponta- naive spontaneity or adult responsibility. Maybe there is another way, a third way. Here, at page 36, on the top of the page, Ignaz writes, and that's the, that will be the conclusion of this first, the first uh, uh, study of this text. It may be possible, however, you have, you have, the, you have the text? Okay, page 36, on the top of the page. It may be possible, however, to oppose to knowledge preceding engagement something other than innocent doing, childlike and beautiful like generosity itself, something other than doing in the sense of pure practice, pure doing. This is what Levinas is for. And then, and now we come to the paragraph which will link us to the Talmudic text itself. Um, please take um, on the same page 36, the paragraph one before the last one, one which begins with begins with the text on Revelation. Here he presents his text. The text on Revelation, on which we are commenting, views precisely on this relation between the message of truth and the reception of this message. For the recipient of the message cannot yet benefit from the discernment which this message is to bring him. The text then will shed light on whether it is possible to escape the temptation of temptation without either reverting to childhood or always violently restrained. 
Perhaps the text suggests a way of avoiding both the alternative of an infinitely cautious old age, here we have the, this metaphor of the adult and the child, the, to avoid both the alternative of an infinitely cautious old age and of an inevitably rash childhood by establishing the relation between being and knowing in another way. May set to work a notion which takes away the value that temptation of temptation has acquired for us. What should we do? What should my disposition be in order to hear something absolutely new? That's the question for the ones. With which ideas, with which notions, with which categories should I approach an event which message defines the categories with which I came to understand it? And try to that's what Ignaz asks you. For the recipient of the message cannot yet benefit from the discernment which this message is to bring him. We always try to understand things with the help of previous or previous knowledge. That's understood. Knowledge by association. I say something, you have previous knowledge, you read it. language is in this way. What is language if not a way of transmitting an idea by means of communicating by, with words things that you should understand because you understand words. But I want to say I want to tell you something new. So how can I tell you something new with with old tools? How can I how can I build a completely new monument with bricks and stones with things which uh, I used to art it's a good it's a good uh, it's interesting remark well, I, I'll ask what, what do you mean poetry I well poetry does new things with old words Poetry does new things without words. Okay, and art? I didn't say art. But you can say the same. Art does also new things with yeah. old... You create new forms with old means. So I would also say, in order to be an artist, um, like a visual artist, which is my art, um, that the processes that he's describing, I really identify with it. It's neither child fish naive day. It can't be that because then it'll be a messy thing like mm-hmm. my granddaughter makes, okay? Or nor is it knowledge. So in one of my, I, I'm in the visual artist baby mm-hmm. drush. So in the baby drush, people are bringing art that is inspired by the text that we're studying. And people will often say, do you think that will work? And the mentor in the group, so the con, he says, do it. Right? Yeah. It's like, do it. It's like, it's like, let's do it and then we'll see if it works. 
So, and I can feel that struggle in myself, and maybe other people identify it, but I want to know ahead of time when it's going to work, and I know that's going to be the death of anything. Like he said, it's dangerous, it's scary, it's fun to have spontaneity. I don't know if it'll work, but if you're not, then I think brain poetry is like that. If you're not in that, then you won't Nothing will happen. I beg your pardon? Nothing will happen. Nothing will happen, but it won't be new. Yeah, okay, so nothing will happen. Right, right. Does that make sense? Yeah. Mm -hmm. So, so we are, so actually we are at the bottom of Mount Sinai, and what we are looking, and and the actual subject we are dealing with is something far more um, broad, let's say, than just the question of the reception of the Torah. We, we, we return to it, but it's a fundamental question that Ignaz asks you. Ignaz asks here, how, what, in what disposition should I be in order, you, you uh, took it to creation, and it's, it's a good, it's a good, uh, uh, I find it a, a good uh, uh, association. Ignaz, in later on, we see, speaks about inspiration, speaks about the idea of what it is to be inspired, in order to understand this text. So you took it there, but um, Levinas here asks, what does it take, or what should my disposition be? How should I describe my disposition in order to be able to hear something completely new? Again, mostly when we hear things, we try to understand them by means of just putting it in a note category. Okay, this is uh, th- this sounds like uh, I don't know. We hear a piece of music. We say, okay, that's uh, influence of Bach and a little bit of Chopin and uh, Renaissance and things like this. So we see a piece of art. And if to return to the art uh, example, but from the point of view of the spectator or of the reader, if you speak about poetry, okay. That's a little bit of wise words, and that's a little bit of Boulet, and this is a little bit... If one reads poetry uh, with this disposition, if one goes to a museum in order just to try to understand what's the historical inf- what are the historical influences of, paint- of, of various painters on this painting, he's not really experiencing the art. He is not really experiencing poetry. He's afraid. He's not ready to be in this disposition which is required in order to hear or to perceive something radically new. Revelation, the Mount Sinai, is about this. Levinas wanted to be about this. When Levinas will read our passage, and you will see this, that will be the, uh, the, the entering, the way Levinas enters into the Subiya, into the Talmudic passage, it, it will be with this question. Now, let's, let's turn to the, to, 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 the, to the Talmudic passage on set and remember what verse we are commenting. And they stood under the mountain. The translation says, at the foot of the mountain, we already saw that our 
Talmudic passage deals exactly with I'm just uh, you can you can come back to, to page 30 you will have the Talmudic passage but we'll see in a moment Levinas um, quotes it's, uh, you can take on page um, here on page 37 okay first page 37 on the top of the page Levinas uh, quotes the, the Talmudic uh, and they stopped at the foot of the mountain so what we are doing here for uh, the question is where 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 were were sorry the, the Israelites where were the Israelites exactly what is the place, I'm retranslating it now in our concepts, what is the place I should occupy in order to experience something radically new? What is the human disposition I should be in in order to experience something radically other than me? Meaning something radically new, or if you want, in the language of our text, revelation. New in relation to you or new in relation to the world? New always in relation to me. So new means new in relation in relation to me. What does it mean new in relation to the world? I'm saying like an entirely new idea that has never been developed or discovered or just something that you don't have previous knowledge of? It's not important if it's um, okay, Matisse, uh, the, the painter, he uh, painted his paintings, I don't know, 80 years ago. Okay, so, so his art exists 80 years ago. If I go into a museum and it's the first time that I see a picture of Matisse, then I am in front of something radically new. The fact that it exists 80 years it's not, doesn't, doesn't matter. Because for me, it's something, it's a, something radically new. For, so, so I would go, so it's not, so the question of if, whether it's objectively new is not, uh, is not really a question for Linus, because it's always about, the, in this sense, Linus is a kind of an existential philosopher. For Linus, the, the only true questions are questions which can be asked in the first person. The only true questions are questions related to me. And here the question is, it's a very fundamental philosophical question. What disposition should I be in in order to hear something radically? Again, I, I just, if you don't relate to the, the question, the question seems too uh, uh, abstract or not, just again think of how, uh, in general, we, we react to something new. We are afraid. We just want to, to code circuit it. To just okay, so that's something I know already. That's something which ah, it resembles this and this and this. So knowledge by associative reasoning, they call. Of course, a lot of new thing can happen around without me being able to recognize that a new thing was uh, happening. That's why it's not objective. 
I can meet Mount Sinai and something and, and, and me myself and something and someone else can be at Mount Sinai and I could experience the revelation while the other could not experience the revelation. Well, let us leave Mount Sinai for what it is. We can both enter in a, in a museum and I will be able to experience something new and my friend who is not in the, the right disposition will find it boring, will not will try to just finish it and go home and so So the question is, again, in order to reformulate it in, uh, in, Talmudic, in Talmudic language, the question is, what is the place they should occupy in order to experience the relation? In order to really be there. Answer, Betartikaha. Answer under the mountain. Not in front of the mountain, but under, below the mountain. Let us say it. So let's, let's read how Ignaz uh, comments this passage. And they stopped at the foot of the mountain, page 37. Rabbi Barchama Barchasa has said, This teaches us that the Holy One, blessed be He, inclined the mountain over them like a tilted tub. And then he said, if you accept the Torah, all is well. If not, here will be your food. Let's keep just counting. Let's count nine, nine lines from, from the start of the, of the commentary. Then let's read how Levinas interprets this Israel is placed below the mountain. If we translate the text literally, the mountain is thus changed into an upside down balance. It threatens to crush the tribes of Israel if they refuse the gift of the law. What wonderful circumstances in which to exercise one's free will. A sword of Damocles, a sword with two cutting uh, sides. That's the sword of Damocles. Either you receive the Torah or you die. The Israelites coming out of Egypt are about to receive the Torah. The negative freedom of those set free is about to transform itself into the freedom of the law engraved in stone into bless you, into a freedom of responsibilities. Is one already responsible when one chooses responsibility? This is the problem suggested by Abdi. Or does he think that the choice of responsibility is made under threat and that the Torah would not have been chosen free? Let's, let's, let's stop here. The Torah also stops here. And let's, let's reflect a little bit on this thing. On this uh, entering remarks. Of course, the, the, the key sentence here is the following Is one already responsible when one chooses responsibility? And try to understand this, this phrase. Even as said, from Egypt to Mount Sinai, 
There is a transition that has to take place, that takes place, which is the transition from the freedom which he calls negative freedom to a freedom that he calls freedom of responsibilities. We have two kinds of freedoms. Fleeing the Egyptians, fleeing slavery, fleeing oppression is one kind of freedom. If you ask it, call it negative freedom. It's, if you want, the freedom to do whatever I want. Before I have to build pyramids, now I can do whatever I want. I'm free. But there is another freedom. He calls it freedom of responsibilities. To be free in the sense that I assume the world, I live in the world in such a way that my freedom is not this kind of open, undefined, infinite freedom, but something which has boundaries. Freedom of responsibility. The difference between freedom, negative freedom and freedom of responsibility is suggested in this phrase that we read. Is one already responsible when one chooses responsibility? Or, I would restate it, is responsibility choice? Is responsibility choice? Well, it depends how you define responsibility. Um, define responsibility and answer the question. No, I take it back. <laughs> I, I agree. It's a, the whole question is how do we define responsibility and how do we define freedom? Those two words, which are key words in our relation to the world, are very uh, tricky words if we don't try to understand them. And here, Levinas is trying, is, is, like, is playing on the trickiness of those words. We try to, let's try to. To, to, to shuffle it a little bit and to understand what the, the trickiness of those words are. Why, why is this phrase so um, inspiring and both kind of mysterious? When Levinas asks, is one already responsible when one chooses responsibility? Or in my formulation, is responsibility really a choice? When we say we choose to be responsible, are we speaking correctly? Are we, are we being honest? Not that we are dishonest, but are we really describing what we do when we say we choose responsibility? Or stated differently, isn't responsibility always felt as a duty? Isn't responsibility always felt as a call, as something which I should do. Of course, I can always choose 
if to give money to the beggar on the corner of the street, I can always choose if to care for my children or for my wife or for my neighbor or for my fellow man. I can choose in the sense that I cannot give money to the beggar and I can, I don't know, be not, not care for my loved, beloved ones or, or for my neighbors so or not sure any. I, there is this possibility, in this sense we say that there is a choice. But, is it completely true that I'm free in regards to all those responsibilities? Is this freedom equal to the freedom to choose what I will eat for lunch or what I will wear tomorrow morning or, what, or whether I go to winter sport or something like that? When I choose to, to give money to the beggar, let's say that's a responsibility, responsible act. I'm responsible, I feel that there is a kind of um, duty, and uh, it's difficult to, to describe it in another way, there is a kind of, uh, of, of duty, there is a kind of expectation. I see a poor man, I see somebody who doesn't have food. I can not give him the money, but I will feel this, this would be the choice. The, the choice would be of not giving the money. Giving him the money would be just answering the call. So freedom here is, this is what Levinas asked, are we really free when we choose responsibility? Is, is there really a choice of responsibility? I will, can you say yet another word? If I choose responsibility, this choice, isn't it already a responsible choice? Shouldn't I be already responsible to choose responsibility? I always mean. It's a little bit. Uh, it's, it's not so. It's just. Uh, it's, it seems. It's, it seems. Uh, I don't know if it's difficult. It's not difficult. It's just. Um, that's that's gymnastics art to, to try to be very precise or to try to to open up those notions and to look into them and to see that if they are far from being self-evident, even though we use them in, in our everyday lives, and free and responsible as if gymnastics. Well, you think you are free, and you think that taking upon yourself responsibilities is a result is a result of your free choice. Maybe it's not so easy. Maybe responsibility is not subordinated to choice. Maybe responsibility comes before choosing. Maybe I can accept responsibility, and in this sense, I'm free. In the same way, I can reject responsibility. But being in front of facing a situation where I am called to be responsible, am I really free to choose? And again, if I choose to be responsible, is this not already a responsible choice? What does all this have to do with how with our Talmudic uh, passage? Well, it's very simple. Levinas he tries to suggest, with the help of the Talmudic passage, 
is that maybe not everything starts from free choice. When the Talmud depicts the situation of the Israelites in front of Mount Sinai, under Mount Sinai, as a situation where there is an alternative between the Torah or death, in a situation where they don't have the choice, Ibn Asked tries to give us the metaphor of what it is to be responsible. It is exactly not to be in front of a choice. Not really being in front of a choice. Does it mean, does it mean that we are not free? in the sense that we are alienated, in the sense that we are bound, in the sense that we are at the service of something that is not ours, this will be all the question of livingness. Let's read a few more lines to see how, how livingness uh, stresses this point. The choice of the Jewish way of being, of the difficult freedom of being Jewish, would have been a choice between this way and death. Already, Embrera. You know what's Embrera in Embrera, it's kind of popular. Embrera. But it's, uh, it's like Ignace um, quotes it in Hebrew because in Hebrew it's kind of it has, uh, this. Nuance that it's not, I don't have a choice, but unfortunately, I don't have an That's how it is. That's how it is. It's kind of an acceptance of the fact that there is no choice. Embryo. The Torah or death, the truth or death, would not be a dilemma that man gives himself. The dilemma would be imposed by force or by the logic of things. The teaching which the Torah is cannot come to the human being as a result of a choice. That which must be received in order to make freedom of choice possible cannot have been chosen. And that's after the fact. In the beginning was violence. Let's, let's uh, put a stop here. Responsibility, I uh, will rephrase it with my words, that which must be received in order to make freedom of choice possible cannot have been chosen, means, well, freedom, the freedom of choice cannot be at the, at the starting point of a relation to the world without which freedom is not possible. If I would, if I have to be free, in order to be free, in order to be in this order of freedom of responsibility and not freedom, negative freedom, if in order to be free in the responsible way, I need something, let's put it in a more assertive way, in order to be free in the sense of freedom of responsibility, I need something which is not completely taken upon myself. 
in the beginning, the Zignas was various. That's what the Talmud suggests. Which suggests. It's very, it's a very, um, violent way, violent thing to say. In the beginning was violence. Those who know Levinas know that Levinas is a big critique of violence. He said, well, in the beginning there was violence. In the sense that I didn't choose. I do not choose responsibility. There is a kind of violence in the sense that I have no choice. Let's take again our example of the beggar. beggar. There is a kind of violence. When I see a beggar, it doesn't hurt, but there is a kind of metaphysical violence in encountering the beggar. Because the beggar imposes upon himself an obligation. I have to give you money. I'm not, of course, again, it's not a I'm free to do whatever I want, but I experience it as an obligation. And therefore, in Levinas' words, as violence. There is a violence inherent to the very situation of being called to answer responsibly to a situation. Do you mean like, like, are we talking about like societal norms and expectations that are established and then we have to confront these societal norms and expectations? I, I mean, that's no. what I'm hearing. I'm, I'm no, okay, so it's a good, it's a good point. No. Uh, uh, eventually, social norms and ex- expectations are kind of um, ways of regulating, regulating something far more fundamental. I will explain. For Levinas, what comes first is not the, the regulations. For Levinas, or not for Levinas, let's ask ourselves the question. Ourselves the question. If I see a beggar in the street, actually there is no... I would say there, is, there are no norms stipulating what I should do. It's, it's considered to be generous to give money to a beggar, and it's considered to be okay. Maybe there, is a, there are a lot of reasons why one isn't giving money to a beggar when a beggar asking for. It's not about regulations. It's not like not killing my fellow man, which is prohibited. Okay, but let's let's ask our question, ourselves a question. When I when I see this this beggar, and let's. Assume that I give him the money. Am I doing it because there are social values to which I feel I'm obliged? Is it something external to my inner reaction to the sad face of a poor man? I would say it's definitely a reaction to the situation. I think that's hard, that's hard to, to, it's hard to decipher where you're coming from. Like, especially if you're part of a normal person, part of society, especially if you're a practicing Jew, then you have whole religious aspects. Let's forget the religious obligations. Let's forget the, if we can, if we can, I don't know, uh, we are so much into, uh, 
you're going in an empty street, okay? nobody is watching. So, social conventions, a lot of times have to do with how with that, it doesn't look nice, you know, I just, you know, just bought a new Ferrari and people look at me and I can't give five dollars. So, that, that would be social convention. I'm not comfortable with not giving money to this guy because there are so many people around and uh, But let's say you are in an empty street. So, I think that's that, that completely... Uh, no, it, it's completely. Um, We're influenced by society norms. If you know, it's not something that we get to separate with someone who sees it or doesn't see it. Like, I don't know, but as you mentioned, you know, like one of the inherent character traits of, of God, which is you know, Jesus is supposed to have, is Rahmanas. That's a very, very being empathetic, and that's a very key Jewish trait that we're supposed to emulate from God. Is the whole concept of Rahmanas. Oh, yes. You know, so I ask you, right? I, and, and I know personally, I'll be honest with you, because I discuss this with my children. I, we never pass, anybody that asks money, we never walk by. I'll give my kids even a penny to give, just mm-hmm. to give something. I'll make sure my kids give, because the idea is, at least this is what I share with my children, what I really understand is that if you walk by, that behavior hardens your heart. And by giving, it's a way of training your soul to be merciful, and that's something that society values, that I value. It's not about the other person. But walking by and not showing you mercy, in a way, affects you. What you do or choose not to do will always affect your soul or who you are. So, so we, we can put aside the social convention. From your description, uh, we can return to it in a moment, but from your description, I hear something which has nothing to do with social conventions. You say there, there, there is something, there is a kind of reflection uh, lying beyond uh, the, the, your attitude, which says, okay, I, I want to have an open heart. And not giving the value of the money means, how do you say, hard, hardening mm-hmm. one's, one's uh, uh, heart. That's not something having to do with social conventions. That's something having to do with your relation to to yourself, to how you want to raise your children and and it has you can't say it has nothing to do with the with the poor man, but of course it has something to do with the poor man because opening up your heart is opening up your heart to a man in distress. It's not about opening your it's not about just, you know, Finding somebody and giving them money in the streets. Because there is, you see, you recognize uh, poverty, you recognize distress, you recognize the, the, the. Now, I will, I will dig further. I will say, well, but again, why do you give money to the poor, to, 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 to the poor man? So you said because I don't want to have a, how do you say, a stiff uh, heart, uh, hard heart. Uh, um, I think it's in a way a little bit selfish also. Mean? Meaning like it makes you feel good. Because you feel like you just save the world. You know, you have a, there is a French philosopher who made his career on this kind of reasoning. Saying that you know, generosity was uh, so self-reward, so rewarding that generosity was an act of an egoistic act. 
La Rochefoucauld, if you want to look it up, he, he wrote like an encyclopedia, trying to show that everything man does is egoistic. And he has a point, it's not uh, about describing him, but I. Um, of course, we feel, we feel uh, satisfied after. Uh, let's say giving money to a, to a beggar. Question if is if we do we do it in order to be satisfied, or if the satisfaction is a result of having met a, du- a, di- a fundamental duty that we uh, instinctive intu- intuitively recognize. That, that's that, that, I'm not I'm not I'm, I'm just raising the the. The other possibility. Okay. Question is, what is the cause and what is the effect? Is satisfaction the cause of giving money to a beggar, or is it the effect of something other that we can misinterpret as being the cause of this same action? Now, there is no there is no clear-cut answer to those questions because you can give money only in order to be satisfied. And you can give the money also just by, because you you feel that there is you have a responsibility. But a responsibility of what? Like a responsibility to let's let's leave the term responsibility aside. Let's speak about a duty. So do you have a, so then it's the same question. Do you have a duty towards that person, or do you have a duty towards doing what's expected, or what you've been taught, or what you? So that's the question of social convenience. So I ask you, what's what is actually the, what is your duty about? What is this duty about? Is it about meeting the expectations of society, or maybe, or maybe, is it something far more? Genuine, far more indirect, far less intellectual, far less calculated. That maybe we have difficulties to recognize because we are very uh, heavily charged with society and norms and regulations, etc. If we look into this very simple act of giving money to a beggar, couldn't we recognize here something which has to do with a very Intuitive understanding that I that there is here a duty which is uh, imposed upon myself. This is what Elena suggests. So, mm-hmm. it's very interesting because what you what you raised the question you raised is uh, is exactly the question that we touched upon before when we said, can I? In other, in other words, can I approach the other man without calculation? You remember we we, we saw this space in the Can to approach the other man with calculation would be well? It's a social norm. Uh, it's expected for me. Your description is interesting. I don't know where to exactly to you know to put it. Maybe you can put it in the, if you want. But uh, or or maybe is it the very genuine reaction of the encounter of otherness in the other man. 
without mediation, without calculation, can we can we still have can we still think about an, a humanity which would be rooted in this kind of relation to the world? This is Levinas' question. This, this is Levinas' struggle. He wants to say, and again we are almost at the end of our um, session of today, Levinas will try to say, of course you can always, always come with La Rochefoucauld and say it's a question of interest. You can always come and say well, it's a question of social conveniences and social norms. But, isn't it also possible to look at this phenomenon and to recognize here a genuine act of giving to the other. Aren't we able, because the Ignace philosophy is normative, it's an ethical philosophy, aren't we able to recognize this thing in our nature and you know, human nature, which feeds itself obliged, which feeds itself duty-bound to the other. Is everything a question of free choice, or can there be something else there? That we can always, you know, we can always look at the other way, we can always reject it, we can always ignore it, we can always do it if it is not there. We can always say it's a question of society norms, it's a question of my egoism, etc., etc. But if we dig deep inside, the ministry will suggest, don't we, don't we find something far more genuine in the very simple? relation of the other, which evokes, which um, awakens in us this sense of a primordial duty towards the other. Primordial duty, which in our text, again, in a metaphorical way, even us, renders in terms of, there is a mountain which is on our, on our, on our head. There is a kind of weight on us. It's not free. If we are honest with ourselves, we'll admit that responsibility is not a question of freedom. You heard the question. So, we're letting us say that when we don't behave in those ways, I'm thinking of how handicapped people used to be treated in an asylum in France in the 18th century, or mm -hmm. when people were mocked and thrown in prison or whatever, would you say, What's the role of, that's the same thing you're in, what's the role of being taught? Of? Of being taught, right? It's like, would you say people were, their true nature was a generosity and acceptance, and they were taught that it was better to be nasty and rejecting? I mean, where does that come from then, all of that part of human history? You can see where, come, where, where, where the walls come from. 
where do murder comes from? Livinus is not giving us an ontological description of what there is. He gives us a normative uh, uh, horizon of what can be. Livinus is not, Livinus is is everything but a naive philosopher. Livinus is very, very lucid. He doesn't, we saw it two weeks ago. he was, uh, he's a citizen of the 20th century, the, 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 the century of the big wars, the century of cruelty, of horror, of killings, etc., of mass murder, etc. So he knows what human money is capable of. Lignat said, well, there is a temptation, there is not a temptation, Saying that there is an original call does not mean that one has to answer this call. And we say even more, philosophy does not recognize this call. This is, the, this is what philosophy lacks. And we spoke again, we spoke in the first session about something that philosophy lacks. For Linnaeus, Linnaeus said philosophy does not find in humanity what I find is. Does it exist in humanity? Well, that's my role in that to show that it exists. But philosopher will come and would say it's such social conveniences. It's a question of egoism. He would say the man is a man is an animal for his fellow man. We are all motivated by self-interest, the all against all, etc. That is well, this story I know, this is the story that philosophy tells us from its beginnings, that man is in rivalry with the other man, that, uh, that politics is about just, just uh, you know, organizing passions, it's not about striving for the good, it's just in order for me not to stab you in the back, I need some rules in order for us to, 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 to live together. The the chidush of Levinas, what he wants to bring it to it, uh, on the table is that maybe the relation between men is not only made of rivalry. Maybe the relation between men, maybe there is something there that can be oppressed, that can be suppressed. There are killings, there are wars. There. That's not the, the point of Levinas. To kill somebody doesn't mean that killing is good. I'm going to a very extremist uh, conclusion, but the fact that, that, that murder exists does not prove that murder is something good, or that is, it is something acceptable, or that, that this is the human nature. That's the point that we're trying to struggle with. Of course, men can kill. But would we say that it is in the nature of man to kill? Some people would. Some of us would. Ibnaz says no. The, and we will we look into this later on. The, this is Ibnaz's phenomenology of the relation with the other. Ibnaz says maybe maybe we maybe I'll do a kind of diversion and we'll do it next week uh, because it's very it's very fundamental. Ibnaz says well. When facing my fellow man, when I see my fellow man, the first thing that, that, that appears here is 
a sense of, of obligation, is a sense of responsibility. Let's stop here for today. Next week, I think we'll make a little uh, uh, digression because this is very important to understand uh, the rest.